Welcome to Everyday Martial Artist, a weekly podcast where you'll join me, Brian Doucet, as I interview a different martial artist each episode and hear their story. Some guests you may have heard of and some you probably haven't. Be sure to subscribe where all your favorite podcasts are available. Also visit our website at everydaymartialartist.com. If you're listening for a specific interview, I sure hope you'll stay and check out the other episodes. A very special thank you to Topher Williams for our custom theme music. And now, the newest episode of Everyday Martial Artist. Everyday Martial Artist is brought to you by KOonline.com for all your martial arts needs. Sparring and safety gear, rank belts, uniforms, weapons, patches, and more. Wholesale supplies made by martial artists for martial artists. Visit us today at KO-Online.com. Hello and welcome to Everyday Martial Artist. I'm your host, Brian Doucette. And as we do every Thursday, we're joined by a brand new guest talking about their life and their journey throughout the world of martial arts. My guest today has been training in multiple martial arts for over 23 years, has taught over 50 Wing Chun seminars in 12 different schools throughout Colorado. He's an advocate of kettlebell, Indian clubs, and mace to supplement all lifestyles and training. Outside of martial arts, he's an anime, comic book, sci-fi geek, and a lover of food books and mountains. He's also a head coach at Red Forest Chinese Boxing and the co-host of Kung Fu Conversations podcast. Please welcome my guest today, Mr. Randall Davis. How are you doing today, sir? I'm doing fantastic. I'm really happy to be talking to you, my friend. Hey, my too. I know we've been talking about this for a little while and you were a little under the weather before, but I'm glad we're finally getting able to get this done. I think you know how it starts. You've heard the show before, so let's talk about that that first experience, that first spark. What what led to your first interest in martial arts? Absolutely. The Karate Kid. Mr. Miyagi did it for me. You know, it, it was a specific scene, too. You know, he leaps the fence to save Daniel's son after, uh, after the uh, Halloween dance and uh, gets a hold of the Cobra Kai boys in their skeleton outfits. And it was that very last scene where Miyagi is shifting from cat stance to cat stance. Yep. And, and I had never seen... I was five years old at the time in the movie theater, and I had never seen a human being move like that. And as we know now, the gentleman that was doing that scene was actually Fumio Demura, yep. uh, who you who you just interviewed, and it was an amazing interview. It was so cool to hear from him. So in a way, not only was it the fictitious character of Miyagi <laughs> that sparked my interest, but it was also the real-life man that is Fumio Demura. And I loved his story about that scene. That was really cool to have him tell that. So. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, that was that that interview. I'm going to tell you, my friend, as a fan of your podcast, that was a very special moment for me as a fan and as a martial practitioner on this journey. It was it was it was great. I was I was so happy to hear it. I was so happy that you got to interview him. That was just that was something special. And yeah. thank you for sharing sharing that with the rest of us. Oh, it, trust me, it was just as special for me. I I loved it when <laughs> when, when, when he said yes. I was like, really? <laughs> I didn't expect right? I didn't expect right? you to say yes, but hey, cool. <laughs> oh my goodness, that is so fantastic. Nice. Well, so from from the movie, uh, the movement practice was always interesting to me. Uh, my dad was really good about, um, or maybe not good about, uh, the parenting fact that. I was five and could watch, you know, a lot of R-rated movies. So, you know, I grew up in the Sylvester Stallone era, uh, you know, Steven Seagal's early movies, Arnold Schwarzenegger, you know, the 80s. The 80s were my uh, playground of interest in watching the martial arts and action movies. And so that was always great. It sparked my interest. I always loved it. I had a friend that I grew up with, grew up in a little bitty trailer park up in the mountains of Colorado, and my friend was a Taekwondo, uh, he trained in Taekwondo, 
he would go down about once a month in Denver and train down in Denver because there was really nothing at the time up in the mountains. Mm -hmm. And then he would also go down once a month and train at an Ed Parker Kempo school. And so to keep up on his uh, applications, uh, I was his sparring partner, so to say. I was more like his punching dummy, but he would show me some stuff and Mm -hmm. I would get a few uh, rotations of kicks and punches in myself. So that, that was always a part of it. And then, you know, a physical culture has always been a part of my life. Uh, my dad and I, we were uh, selective cut loggers. I actually started, I get to joke and, and do that old, uh, that saying that I walked uphill both ways. It's not quite, <laughs> but my first job was for my dad it was at 10 years old. And uh, we would cut, dad would cut fence posts, of course, with a chainsaw. I wasn't running a chainsaw at 10 years old, <laughs> but he gave me this little, little tiny hatchet and he had hand tied these come along ropes. And where we were logging, we were up on a hill. And so we would park at the bottom of the hill and I would delimb the six and a half foot trees that he would cut to length that were anywhere from six and a half to eight inches in diameter. I would delimb those with my little hatchet and then I would get about three of them into the come along rope and I would pull it downhill. I would load it up on the truck and I made 10 bucks a day. Uh, Dad, also one of his other careers in another life, he was a chef. So he would make these huge lunches. So we just sit, listen to, you know, like fifties and sixties music, some Motown. That was our lunch break. And then we get back out into nature. Uh, We were hunters, fishermen, So physical culture was always a part of my life. Uh, I was late to the game of high school wrestling. I started as a freshman and competed uh, my freshman and sophomore year. I was awful at it, uh, but I absolutely loved my team and I loved my coaches. Okay. Uh, As a matter of fact, one of them has gone on uh, to have a very successful uh, college wrestling career. And he is actually a coach. I'm going to mispronounce this uh, gentleman's name. He's one of the wrestling coaches for Justin Gaethy or Gachi. Okay. Uh, and Rose, a uh, thug Rose. And uh, is it the, um, oh, I can't think of the other gentleman's name. But yeah, Ben Sherrington, he's he's out there uh, coaching uh, some high level MMA practitioners now. And his father was my high school wrestling coach. Okay. And since I was so late to the game, he, I, I would usually learn whatever movement or application they were doing at the time. I would, le- I, you know, I'd get my own little, like, private little lesson that would last about five or ten minutes. And I would have one move that I would learn, like, once a week. <laughs> and so, like I said, even though I was so late to the game, I would practice that one move a week. And then the rest of the wrestlers would basically, uh, the rest of the group would basically use me as a tackling dummy. But I, I loved it. We had great camaraderie. You know, there was definitely uh, much of a not only competitive but teamwork spirit, and that that really cha- you know was I I really feel that was my first formal introduction to a martial art. You okay. know, wrestling's been around. Oh since, yeah. You know, I mean, before we uh, had written culture, so I I think it's a primal thing. But the, the wrestling that I did at the high school was great. So then, that was your first actual structured school that, of any type of training that, was that, wrestling. That that's right. That's okay. just good old high high school wrestling. And then from there, I, I moved on to other things. Uh, I did more like track and field my junior and, and sophomore or high, excuse me, junior and uh, senior year of high school. Okay. And then it was off to college in uh, 1998 that I would first attend Mesa State College, which is over in Grand Junction, which is a university now. And I kind of missed wrestling, and I saw that they had a judo club. 
So I signed up for the judo club. And then at the same time, the head of the mathematics department, Mr. Ed Hamada, had started a small Wing Chun group. And um, so I was always at the gym. I was always doing something physical. And uh, Ed and I had always passed each other in the halls. And we always spoke to each other friendly and respectfully. And he's like, you know, Randall, I'm starting this club. He's like, I've only had it running for about two or three weeks. Why don't you come check it out? You might like it. And I'm like, sure, I'd love to. And he, yeah, I want to say that was in October of 1998. And I haven't stopped since then. So, so you were doing judo and Wing Chun at the same time. So what kind of, obviously two very different styles. What made you want to do them both? What was it about each style that drew you to it once you got a taste of each one? You know, I didn't really, and this is going to sound hilarious, but I didn't really, I knew judo had a grappling background mm-hmm. and that's what I was really interested in was getting back into something that had some, you know, throws or, you know, I could shoot in on people, those kind of things. Okay. So judo was kind of wetting my whistle again for the grappler style, okay. but the Wing Chun, I had no idea what it was, Brian. It sounded foreign. It sounded, and, and the price was right too. Uh, I don't want to sound, but it's like, yeah, the club's free right now. I'm like, okay, well, I can afford free. And, uh, so, and it, and it worked in my schedule. So I wanted to try it. I, I didn't know what it was, where it was from, but I had, I had the offer and I really liked Ed and any conversation that we had had in passing, I always had a good time. So I was more interested in helping out uh, a gentleman that I respected and liked as much as I was learning a martial art. And okay. it just happened that I would fall in love with Wing Chun. So what was it then, thinking about maybe those first four, five, six lessons, what was it about Wing Chun that was so special and just you knew it would become part of your life? So Ed's teacher, who would eventually become my teacher, uh, has a PhD in cognitive development and psychology and ed had a phd in mathematics and the way that they presented this art was as much of what gets tossed around as principle and theory you hear a lot of people describe what that is this is one of the few schools even to this day that that is how they teach the martial art so it's not just an art it is a thinking process it is an attitude. It is a way to develop a learning style. And I had never seen anything like that, as well as an effective martial art. And at the time, I was a freshman in college. Mm-hmm. I was there to, to learn. And so having a method of martial arts that was presented as a learning style, as well as an effective boxing style, or short-range Chinese boxing style, I, I had never seen anything like that. And so, you know, when in Rome or when in college, you know, when you're trying to have a degree and, you know, study, if you have a way of martial arts that helps develop your thinking and and your, your understanding of how to learn, what a, what a great gift. Oh yeah. And again, I've never, I've never really seen the art presented or, or the, the style or system. Sifu Mayer really presents Wing Chun as a system meaning that it, it has a way to loop and close itself off, meaning that almost everything in Wing Chun, the way that it was given to me, everything has a counter or a stalemate. So, so it has that chessboard uh, style of learning, if you will. You know, okay. all these, one hand should have multiple, multiple, multiple applications, and it fits, and each hand has a counter, each hand counters another hand, and again, like I said, I've ne- I'd never really seen any martial art presented that way. So 
it takes the martial art out of a cookbook style of learning, mm-hmm. meaning when they do this, you do that. It's like, well, you've got a hundred different things that you can do. Why don't you try one and see how they react to what you, the stimulus that you give them. Nice. I, I know you stuck with Wing Chun. How long did you stick with the, ju- oh, with the judo? I stuck with it for two years and I absolutely loved it, Wow! but it was an an injury that Mm. made me, I I don't want to say walk away, but limp away. (laughs) Okay. There was a gentleman, uh, I was, I am five foot five still, and I was about 200 pounds at the time and, you know, working out in the gym all the time, those kind of things. But I was also doing martial arts and all, I love, again, I love physical culture. It's always been a part of my life. And there was a gentleman in the class named Ram Dom Kasal. I'll never forget Ram Dom. He was about six foot three, six foot four, a Sikh gentleman, and he weighed about 320 to 340 pounds. Wow. And I, and I was one of the only people that could throw him in the class. And Ram Dom was almost always my sparring partner. Okay. And we were working, boy, I can't remember if it was in a Ponce and Augie. I can't remember the technique quite right. But anyway, I, I loaded him up properly, you know, just, uh, like a good judo throw should be. I loaded him up properly, and the throw started to happen, and my foot rolled. And it made an interesting kind of xylophone popping sound. And I wound up waking up the next day with a wildly swollen foot. Uh, Looked like a bunch of bees had stung my my foot. You know, it was so swollen with fluid. And uh, I went to the, the campus doctor. They removed the fluid, and they're like, you know, you haven't, you haven't broken anything, um, took the x-rays, but you've really stretched a lot of the fashion, the connective tissues and other things in there. Yeah. So, you know, you're going to be off of this for about two months, you know? And so they had me on crutches. Uh, they had a, they had like not quite a soft cast, but Mm -hmm. they just wrapped it up for me. But while I was recovering, I could sit on a chair and still do my first form in Wing Chun. And so that kind of, and so that kind of, you know, pushed me towards the Wing Chun. So I just kept kept going that route. So in that two years, did you ever do any competition in judo? In judo, no, I did not. Okay. No, no. Um, we, we didn't have any tournaments or anything like that. But the my sensei's sensei, who I, I hate to say, I think I can only remember the assistant's name, Brian, who was the, the uh, another Brian, who was the brown belt at the time. But the, the it might have been Steve. I can't remember the gentleman's name who was the head instructor. But his sensei, was very competitive in judo and I I can't remember them. It's been, uh, it's almost 25 years now. So I hate to say, I really enjoyed the class. I hope they're still out in Grand Junction somewhere teaching judo. Okay. So then you, you stuck with that specific Wing Chun instructor all through college. And then what happened after college? Well, I graduated. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I took a doctorate amount of time uh, (laughs) and I do not have a doctorate, if you will. So I enjoyed my, uh, what was it? Six years at Mesa. And then I was working on a post-baccalaureate teacher's license down in Denver in 2004. Uh, there, was a, there was a great college down there, Metro State, and they have, it's basically a four-year degree that you do in two, but you already have to have a degree in like English, mathematics, something that you could teach with, history. And so I was really applying myself to college at that point. Uh, I was one of the best in the class. Out of 115 students, I was in the top five. And I didn't like the politics that were in education. I understand that everything has politics in it, (laughs) but when there's kids involved, it just, it really put a bad taste in my mouth, Brian. So I went back home to the mountains for a year 
and that turned into basically almost a decade. I went back home uh, to Granby and uh, started working at a little rental shop at a ski area. And then in the summertime, I was working at the Grand Lake Golf Course. I got paid to mow the grass in the middle of the Rocky Mountain National Park. Nice. And I was still up about once every two or three years, I would save up enough money and I would go either bring Sifu Mayor to Colorado, which is in a principle-based method. And so once you start to know the forms and some of the drills, what he can do is, I call it the uh, year's worth of teaching over the course of three days. <laughs> he would basically crack open my skull and pour in more principle on the movement and the drills that I already know and showed how they linked back to the forms, how they would link back to application, how they would link into entry, wow. how they would link into strategy. And so all these different categories, he would piecemeal out. And it was things that I already knew. And all of a sudden, I knew that much more how to use something that I already knew. So it wasn't really doubling mm -hmm. my knowledge. It would more like quadruple or multiply it by 10. Wow. Because each of the hands have a relationship to certain hands, but they also have a way to anti-joint lock to maybe set up a punch, to maybe set up a transition, to maybe set up, I don't know, how to bleed off force from an odd angle. So there's all these different ways to use the same material over and over and over again. The hammer becomes a knife. You know, the hammer becomes a can opener. You know, the hammer becomes uh, a, a really, really big back scratcher. All these different categories that you can use for a tool that's already familiar to you. Okay. Wow. Interesting. Very. And that, so how long did that go on for then? Uh, I still train with CFU Mayor today. But so, is yeah. it still only like every couple of years or more often? It, yeah. Yeah. Right, right. Right now it's still every only couple of years. It's okay. just between work and, and we both have really hectic, busy schedules. As a matter of fact, he just did a big move from North Carolina out to California to spend time. Uh, one of his sons just had two granddaughters. So oh. he's, He's a grandpa for the first time. So that's, that's been his main focus, which it should be. He's yes. waited a long time. So is his wife. So he's more than thrilled to be doing that, but we're hopefully going to meet sometime this year and continue my, my journey into uh, Wing Chun. And at what point did you start teaching yourself? I want to say it was Oh four and okay. it was with a good friend of mine. And at that point I wasn't publicly teaching. Okay. I had a good friend of mine that I had grown. It was a matter of fact, it was a gentleman that was my friend that did Taekwondo and Kempo when I was a kid. Oh, okay. And so back in 04, he had a room to rent. So I rented from him. And he was like, and he still had some of the old Kempo. And then he had dabbled briefly in Goju as well uh, later on in his 20s. And he's like, you know, you keep yapping about this Wing Chun stuff. <laughs> he's like, you want to you do a little light sparring? I'm like, sure. And so we, and I was probably, well, I guess I was, you know, four or five years into it at the point from 98. And uh, we were doing a pretty good job of stalemating each other, and I trapped him. And at least in my lineage of Wing Chun, for us, a true trap in my lineage of Wing Chun is when I'm controlling two of your hands with one of mine, which gives me a free hand to strike. And it was so funny. I remember Ted tells his story quite a bit, my friend Ted. He's like, I didn't know what was going on because we were lightly sparring, and all of a sudden... I was going to punch him and something was stopping me from punching him. And I had to disengage looking at his punch coming at me and see what was stopping me. <laughs> 
and it was my own hand <laughs> stopping me. Nice. And he's like, it, it was that moment that I'm like, okay, I'm sold. And so he would go on to continue his Wing Chun journey. In about 2006, he met a Sifu that he really hit it off with, and he's gone on to become a Sifu on his own. Nice. So that's pretty cool. Okay. Yeah. Cool. You still can, you know, teach to this day and everything. So what? Sure. What's first of all, sure. what, what led to that? What, after that, what led to after that student? What, when did you continue to teach after that? So I was, I was still training with Sifu Mayor. Right. And I want to say it was 07 or 08 that he's like, you know, you're still training with me. You're doing a pretty good job. You know, you were an assistant instructor because at, at Mesa, we had a club from pretty, basically 98 to 04 when I left Mesa. There was a six year club at Mesa of the Wing Chun Club. And I was one of the assistant instructors. Okay. He's like, I've seen you, you know, instruct. He's like, I like how you teach. Why don't you be my state rep? I'm like, okay. So I was honored by that, which sounded great. And I wasn't openly pushing to teach it. I was, I was busy with work. There's a joke in the mountains that unless you have uh, millions of dollars, you work two to three jobs in the mountains. Yeah. Even, even if you do have a really excellent job, like construction or selling real estate, you still have a part-time job once in a while at a coffee shop because it is so expensive, even back in the 80s, 90s, to live in Colorado. So I was working three jobs at the time, but you know, I was in my 20s, so I could pull it off. And there is an awesome bakery in Grand Lake called the Blue Water Bakery. I'm going to do a shout out to them. And uh, it was run by two amazing people from New Zealand, uh, Simon and Candy. And their son was a freshman in high school at the time. And they had traveled quite a bit with the kids earlier. And Nick had done Aikido. I think he had dabbled in ninjutsu, some karate, all kinds of martial arts, Nick had dabbled and tried. And one day I was in passing, I had mentioned to Simon that, you know, I was, you know, I could come in and help him with something, but I had to train that night. And he's like, Oh, what are you training in? I'm like, Oh, well, I, I, I do Wing Chun. He's like, Oh, he's like, is that a Kung Fu style? And I mentioned it. He's like, would you ever be willing to teach a kid in high school? I'm like, sure. Is he a nice kid? He's like, yeah, I'll have you meet him. So I met Nick and he was pretty fantastic. We hit it off quite well. Uh, it's hilarious because Nick, I think, is six foot seven or six foot eight, and at the time in high school as a freshman, I want to say he was only six foot four. Oh wow! And so I, I, I'm, I'm like I said, uh, five foot five, <laughs> and so it was very much. It's funny because I have multiple students that are six foot five, six foot six, six foot eight. <laughs> so I don't know. I, I'm, I, I guess, uh, opposites attract or whatever, or it's, it's a Chihuahua teaching a Great Dane how to bark and bite. <laughs> But uh, Nick and I hit it off, and he's like, I've got a bunch of high school buddies that would like to learn this as well. And so I started a little class. It was very interesting because the way the bakery was set up, it was inside a larger building, and it had, I don't know if you'd call it a closed breezeway, but it had like a, a closed breezeway inside of it that had this weird rock, uneven tile floor. And that's where I actually held my class. Oh, really? And I would hold that every Sunday. Uh, I did that class for three years, I want to say. Uh, I didn't really start teaching that class till about 2007. Okay. I did that from 2007 to 2009. And Nick was interested in some white crane. He's like, I feel like this has some white crane origins. And so I found a gentleman in Denver. And uh, his school has now closed, but he still teaches his students privately. There was a school in Parker called Parker Kung Fu. 
And uh, I'd seen that he had trained in some white crane. So I called him up. I'm like, hey, I've got a student that's interested in some white crane. He's like, yeah, come on down. He's like, I'll charge this much for a seminar. So we, we went down to the big city off of the mountains and trained with Sifu Henton and had a really good time. And he's like, hey, you're really skilled. Would you, I'm opening a school in a year. Would you want to come down and do seminars at my school? I said, sure, I'd love to. And a year went by. I didn't really think anything of it. And sure enough, a year later, he calls me. He's like, school's open. Why don't you come down and start doing some seminars? I'm like, okay. <laughs> so in 09 was really my first uh, seminars that I started teaching. Okay. And it it was such a hit that the his school asked for Sifu him to bring me back. So there was a good year there that I was coming down once a month wow. from 09 to 10. I was teaching there. And then word of mouth got out. He had a gentleman that uh, was in his school that was working on opening his own school from a different, he did a different Kung Fu style than Sifu Henton, but he really liked and respected Sifu Henton. So he would come train some of his stuff. He's like, hey, I'm opening a Manta school. Would you come do some of the seminars like you're doing at my Manta school? I said, sure. So two or three years go by, he opens his school. I start training there. And then he starts, he was asked to do a seminar over in Grand Junction, of all things, where I actually started the Wing Chun. And there's a gentleman that has a school over in Grand Junction, and I started teaching at his school right before I left in uh, 2010 or 11 uh, to come down to the front range from the mountains. A gentleman had uh, opened a karate school in Winter Park, and he also dabbled in ninjutsu. He's like, hey, I would love, you know, I actually reached out to him. I'm like, hey, I'm leaving within six months, but, you know, I'd love to say hello, see what you're up to. He's like, sure. So I went and took one of his classes, and then he took one of my Wing Chun classes. He's like, this is really cool. I would like to learn this. And so I came in and worked with his students. And then word of mouth got out. And, yeah, it's it's eventually from 09. I think there's been 12 different schools that I've taught at over the state of Colorado. Wow. So That's kind of cool. Quite the, it, it is very cool. I like I like the seminar style teaching. It's it's um, even though Ed ran the class at Mesa, Sifu Mayer would come in twice a year, and I was always impressed. You know, he always got the shine or the sprinkle part of teaching the system because Ed had to be, you know, the oh, your hands got to be in this position, it's got to be this way. So Ed was the den mother, if you will, that would make sure that we got the details right the two nights a week that we had the class, and then Sifu Mayer would come in and just dump all this information and, you know, kind of got to be the, the hero teacher in that way. So I, I, but I really started to enjoy and pick up on that seminar style of teaching and, and it just, it clicked with me. Okay. And then when did uh, Red Forest Chinese boxing start? How long has that been going? So uh, I had also done some other arts. Mm-hmm. Uh, the summer of my freshman year of college, I found a white eyebrow or Pac May school in Longmont. Oh, wow. Okay. And, and I was driving over Trail Ridge through the Rocky Mountain National Park. It was, I actually had mentioned this on another podcast and I had shortened it. I lived in Granby at the time. So it was about 150 miles round trip. Wow. And I would go down to just practice once a week. And I did that for two summers. Okay. Fell in love with it. Another Southern Kung Fu style, by the way. And so many of the hands were similar to Wing Chun. But the stance, the posture, and all you know, and how you applied the hands were different. So I had different tactics, different theories, and I had worked with so many different people along the way. But I'll kind of tell you what Red Force Chinese boxing is, and then I'll tell you what it's not. Okay. It was 
something that Sifu, it was a seed that he had planted. He likes to use that analogy a lot. He likes to plant seeds and see what it grows into. Is it going to be a weed? You can pluck it out. Or is it going to be a garden? You know, those kind of things. Okay. At one point, I want to say this was in 07. I was doing a seminar with Sifu Mayor, and he said something that will stick with me till the day I die. He's like, you know, there's essentially in Western boxing, a jab, a cross, a hook, and an uppercut. And that jab, cross, hook, and uppercut, you know, with different stances, different lead hands, and all this other stuff, it winds up turning into like 64 strikes or something like that for Western boxing. I'm like, huh. He's like, but have you ever looked, Randall? He's like, we have an equivalent. It's not boxing, but it's Wing Chun's equivalent to a jab, a cross, a hook, and an uppercut. And the seed that it planted in my head started from wrestling, but I took it into a boxing context. Okay. I realized that in wrestling, think of it this way, Brian, a judo gentleman with an open mind that walked into a Brazilian jiu-jitsu gym could learn a lot because it's grappling. Right. A, a Brazilian jiu-jitsu gentleman with an open mind could walk, well, not walk, you'd have to fly over to Mongolia, but he could take a class in the Mongolian style of wrestling known as bulk, and he could learn something because it's grappling. And that gentleman that does bulk wrestling could go to China and learn some Shui Jiao and get something from it because it's wrestling. Just like the gentleman from China could go to Greece and learn something, you know, from Greek wrestlers because it's wrestling. Right. And that Greek gentleman could go to India and learn their grappling style because it's wrestling. And I'm like, why doesn't striking arts have something like this? <laughs> because I can apply all my Wing Chun strikes with a full Western boxing glove on. So I wanted to pull out a piece of the Wing Chun that I thought was prevalent, which was our jab, our cross, our hook, and an uppercut. And I've got little drills that I've kind of, that are a part of our Wing Chun, but I've done with boxing gloves and pads and things like that. So I could go into a Western boxing gym and show them the boxing part of Wing Chun that they would be familiar with to have that conversation. The stance is going to be different. The posture is going to be different. The setup's going to be different. But I can at least have a conversation with somebody in that Western boxing style. And I've actually done the same thing with the Xing Yi that I've been practicing the last nine years, too. We have something that is kind of like a jab. We have something that's kind of like a cross. We have something that's kind of like an uppercut. We have something that's kind of like a hook. But the body mechanics are different. The stance is different. And the tactics to apply them are different, too. But again, still... I can apply all of those with the Western boxing gloves on. Okay. So that's kind of what Red Force Chinese boxing is. But mainly it's me honestly teaching the Wing Chun. Right. And so do you have an actual physical school for that? Do you, is it a, do you have like full classes or is it more private lessons? How are you teaching? That? It's more, it's more, I have small groups okay. and it's more private lessons. Okay. Uh, I, I guess I'm one, I, I'm one of the, uh, it's either at my apartment or I have three or four parks that I frequent here in Longmont. Okay. Uh, right now, I've been working with a group out of Denver that I'm, I'm very fond of. Uh, the group is uh, Denver Shaolin Tai Chi, that also goes by the handle of 5280 Shaolin. Okay. And uh, those guys come up and pick on me once a month, and then I go down to Denver and I uh, teach down there once a month. So nice. I'm seeing them about eight hours eight hours a month okay. between the two days. Cool. So, yeah, and, and we're, ha we're having a blast. And I'm getting... More and more people randomly calling me and knocking on my door. So it, it's, it, is, it is a love of mine. Uh, I don't know if I'll ever want a brick-and-mortar school. Right. Uh, I, I, I don't do it for money. I'm doing it definitely to pass on something that I think is rare, unique, and special 
And so that that's the reason that I do it. And I, plus, I like training myself and having new people, new ideas, and new hands to work with. So it, it's the teaching of it is always going to be a part of my life and a passion. But I don't, I don't really think it's ever going to be my, my number one forte for finance. Okay, good. Well, that's good. That's a good reason to do it, though. So talk about then how you met Owen and what kind of led to the podcast. Sure. I moved down here in 2011 for a girlfriend and we didn't work out, but the job worked out really well. But I, w- I was very fond of her. Some things went sideways. It ended horribly. And I was kind of in a dark place. And back to the movement stuff, I've always felt like moving is therapy. Right. And so I had an old friend reach. I had a bunch of old friends reach out to me. And I'm, I'm telling you, I, I was actually talking to uh, our friend Jared at the Marshall Box podcast. And it was like something in the force, like random friends that I hadn't heard from in decades reached out to me. Uh, the first one, he's like, hey, man, uh, are you still lifting weights pretty heavy and have tight shoulders? I'm like, yeah. He's like, I found these light Indian clubs. You might check them out. So I got into that. And then uh, I, had, I also had an old esoteric teacher, as I call him, mm-hmm. when I was going to Mesa, uh, Sifu Bill. I still pick on him every now and then. Very fond of Bill. And he had taught me some Tai Chi ball. And I, I was just using, like, soccer balls and uh, basketballs to do this, this, this movement. Uh, because, you know, the wooden ball, the wooden Tai Chi ball is pretty expensive. They're any, I think the cheap ones are like 150 bucks. Wow. But they're worth it. They're amazing. Um, but that being said, uh, I pulled out my old, old notes on the Tai Chi ball. So I started doing that. Uh, I, I started finding the mace, the clubs, and the kettlebells at the time. And I've been doing all that for almost a decade now. But as I was doing that, uh, an old friend of mine, and I want to say it was at right at the beginning of 2013, my friend Steve was the main assistant for the white eyebrow class that I was taking. If you remember mm-hmm. um, at the beginning of the conversation <laughs> and Steve is, uh, oh, he is 30 years, my elder. So I met him, I was 19 and he was 50 when I first met him at the Pac May class and out of the blue, he calls me and he, and I, and I don't know if someone got a hold of him. We don't really have any, personal acquaintances but he's he's like hey if you're going through some rough times uh i know boulder is about you know 50 miles round trip from loveland where i was living at the time he's like but i've got a great group down here that i think you should meet and we're doing a really interesting style of martial art called shingy so why don't you come down and train with us the first class is free just reach out to owen and i'm like okay and i wasn't uh, i just kind of needed to get out of the house if you will brian you know what i mean just right. kind of get away yeah. from my thoughts and I went to the first class and I thought it was fun. And then it's only once a week. And then I went another day and I thought it was fun. Another Sunday. And then I went another Sunday and I thought it was fun. And about five Sundays in, they were working on a joint lock. And I was working with a lovely lady named Alexandria. And she is a small human being. She's about five foot three, five foot four, and maybe 125 pounds on a good day. And I'm, I'm 225 now. I was 225 at the time at five foot five. So I was, I was outweighing her by about a hundred pounds and she's, you know, we're doing cooperative drills and she's applying a joint lock on me. And I was like, you know what? I'm feeling feisty today. I don't think I'm going to let her have it. And so I start to try to muscle out of it and she's still getting the lock. And then I'm like, no, I'm not going to let this happen. And so I put a little more muscle into it and I'm still getting locked. And my arm's still turning. I'm like, nope, 
And so I just crank it up to a hundred, put my full body weight into it. And by the time I did that, I was looking up at her on the floor (laughs) and I'm like, okay, there's something here. I want to find out what it is. And so I just started taking tons of private lessons with Owen. And a lot of the first few years was teaching. I would do the movements and think I was doing them correctly, but the engine and the transmission system are totally different, if you will, from Shing Yi to Wing Chun. And so when I was first doing the Shing Yi, it was a Wing Chun guy that had Wing Chun in his nervous system trying to do Shing Yi. And it took me a good three years to just do the basics in Shing Yi properly without the Wing Chun sprinkles on top of it, if that makes any sense. Okay. And so I just stuck with it and trained it, trained it, trained it, trained it. I was training daily for a good three years because it was the only time that I felt mentally and emotionally good. And so I used it as, as a healing tool again for emotionally and, and, and the mental stuff that I was going through with, with a breakup. Okay. And I just, I got, I got hooked on it and I loved it. And eventually Owen moved the class into Bagua and I stuck with the Shing Yi. And so for years I have been his pretty much primary Shing Yi student. Like they're, they're spinning, <laughs> the class is spinning in circles and I'm the weirdo in the corner going in a line down, up and down all by myself. So, uh, I, I'm the lone Shingy guy and Owen and I, as we started taking lessons, we just hit it off. I don't know. We were just, uh, you know, uh, peanut butter and chocolate, if you will. Nice. And, uh, we, our, our attitudes complemented each other. Well, you know, he was a small town mountain kid too, uh, grew up about, 25 miles outside of Boulder in the mountains in a small town, just like I did. And for some reason we started, you know, talking about our understanding of Chinese martial arts and a lot of our notes that we had taken over the years, not in how to fight, not in theory, but what Chinese martial arts might be came to very similar conclusions. And so I'm like, I've never found anybody that knows this stuff. He's like, I don't really know anybody that knows this stuff either. And so it was kind of out of the blue about a year, year and a half ago during the COVID stuff that he's like, what do you think about doing a podcast? And I said, yeah, let's give it a shot. And so about the same time that we started working on the podcast, I started dipping my toes into the deep end of the pool. Uh, his school has world-class Shing Yi, but they're, they're really known for their Bagua. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was, I was not really hip into learning the Bagua, but Something that the Xing Yi did for my Wing Chun, the Xing Yi moves in deeper, like deeper stances. There's more twisting patterns in the Xing Yi. And so it's in my joints and my posture. And by doing that, doing some of the isolated movements that are signature moves in Wing Chun, I had more control. And so Owen kind of, uh, he propagated me into uh, doing the Bagua by saying, Hey, do you know how Xing Yi has made your Wing Chun that much better? I was like, well, yeah. He's like, Bagua is going to do that for your Xing Yi. I was like, okay, all right. <laughs> so about, so in about August of uh, last year, I started dipping my toe into the deep end of the pool of the Bagua, and I'm really enjoying it. It's, um, it's really helping out my lower back. Like I said, the joints, the connective tissues, it just moves that much deeper into this coiling, twisting method than the Xing Yi does. And so, yeah. I'm loving it. It's great. But yeah, we, we wanted to start up a, uh, he mentioned a podcast and we, 
hit the ground running and we've been at it. We just dropped our 20th episode a week ago. So how often do you, do you do episodes and what kind of stuff can people hear on them? Sure. Uh, so we try to do it bi-weekly. So you'll probably hear two a month and something that I don't know, everyone's trying to find a niche or create their own voice mm -hmm. in the podcast world of martial arts. And I think that's great because I think we need as many points of view, perspectives and opinions as possible because a lot of us that are doing these podcasts are Westerners teaching ancient Asian martial arts. Right. And I know there's plenty of MMA martial arts podcasts. I know there's plenty of BJJ martial arts podcasts, but you know, let's face it. A lot of us are here in the West. We have full-time jobs and uh, we're doing our best to try to train and teach these martial arts. So one thing, even though the, the podcast is called Kung Fu Conversations that I think we really try to do is we talk about the training styles and methods and teachings that we do. So yeah, well, we're going to mention Wing Chun. Mm -hmm. We're going to mention Xing Yi. We are going to mention Bagua or Chinese martial arts, but we try to piecemeal it down to principles such as timing, distance, force usage, speed, mechanics. So it winds up talking like maybe a Western boxing coach or even a, a wrestling high school coach, you know, things that the human body moves around. doesn't matter if you're in India or, you know, if, if you're Sartreuse, as long as you've got two arms and two legs and are a human being, those are the parts of training that we really talk about. What okay. are our personal philosophies on coaching and training and teaching and learning and understanding are. And is it audio only or is it video? It is audio only. Okay. Uh, I have a face for radio. So yeah, <laughs> right now you can find it. <laughs> right. That, uh, you know, that old phrase, uh, right now, uh, I am on Spotify. Uh, we are on Spotify, uh, Apple casts, Google casts. I think we're also on pocket pocket casts and anchor. Okay. So th those are the ones that I can think of right now. Cool. I'll definitely put a link on the, on the show notes for that for sure. So. Good. Awesome. Thanks, Brian. Nice. So what advice would you give to people looking to get involved in martial arts for the first time? I know you, you obviously have been teaching a lot and you, you have experience both in private lessons and actual brick and mortar schools. So what advice would you give someone looking to get into it? You know, some things to look for, some things to avoid. I never thought I would say this, <laughs> but in the time of internet learning in this age, in this modern day, I think the world is our oyster now, at least for martial arts. Now, can you become, you know, a high-level practitioner or a grandmaster without training in person and out, without having actual tactile sense and awareness? I don't think so. But if there is a style, if there is a person out there that you really want to train with, there are resources now that you and I never had growing up. Yep, definitely. And, and, and so now, I, again, I never thought I would say this, but a decade into the internet learning. And then after being two years out of COVID, I would say you can go down the street to your local dojo or Kuhn or whatever it is, check it out. I would say start in person, mm -hmm. but if you don't have, I mean, there, there's still people that live in small mountain towns in Colorado that don't have dojos, but they have internet access right? and they have access to the world. So I would say get out there and train it and get with it. Nice. Yeah, I know. It's a great point. Cause like even looking at my hometown, obviously I don't live there anymore, but my hometown where I still have family, one martial arts school, that's it. So people there have one choice. Whereas where I live right now, 
we have over 30 within 20 miles. <laughs> so it's just, yeah. it's, it's, it's yeah, a big, it's here. a big difference. Mm-hmm. Very much so. Very much so. All right. So you've been you know, studying Kung Fu, very traditional martial arts majority of your life. What are your thoughts on MMA and the UFC? And are you a fan? I am a huge fan of both, but mm-hmm. I will tell you, I'm not a fan of the, of the organization mm-hmm. that is the UFC, but I am a fan of their fighters. Okay. And, and I have ones that I follow. I feel like a lot of people that are traditional martial artists, I really think that they'd be fine meeting some MMA people. It's one of those where you actually have to meet the person, I really believe. But like the organization of the UFC, I think we all can agree that, that they can get a little bit sleazy. So I don't have to like the organization, but I can cheer for the fighters. Right. I can be a fan of them. So I like MMA. I think it's fantastic. Yeah, I think it's great. And I think one of the things, too, that it's, it's done, and a lot of people might disagree with this, but I think it's made us look in the mirror as traditional martial artists, and it, it's like, okay, what are we actually teaching? Mm-hmm. What, and, and is it a time machine? Is it something that's antiquitous? What am I getting out of this? Am I getting self-defense out of it? Am I becoming a fighter with this? Am I, do I have a great hobby that helps keep me healthy and in shape and helps me meet a community and friends? And so I think we all have different reasons that we train. But actually taking the time to think about why we train and what we're training, I think that's a blessing. I think that that's something that we, we have needed for a while. And, yeah, I love, I love MMA. I think it's great. Good. I love the fighters. I'm not a huge fan of UFC. How about that? <laughs> I would agree completely. So. <laughs> All right. Who are some names you would put on your personal Mount Rushmore of martial arts? That I would love to train with. Oh, my goodness. Uh, I would have loved to have met and trained with Wong Q. That is my Sifu Sifu. Okay. Uh, he was a private student of Yip Man. Wow. And he, he was one of Yip Man's first students that was Western college educated. He was a civil engineer for the British government. And one reason that you don't hear his name spoken of a whole lot is because a lot of his, because you worked for the British government and occupied Hong Kong, that was kind of a big poo-poo, if you will. Mm-hmm. So, but yeah, I would have loved to have worked with him. Uh, when Sifu Mayer met him back in the day, Sifu Mayer was an architect at the time. And so they had this cerebral meeting of the minds. And I would have loved to have worked with uh, Wong Q. Okay. Lee Sun Yi. Lee Sun Yi is the lineage, uh, the Hubei line of Xing Yi that I practice. Okay. And I love Xing Yi. And he ran a professional bodyguard service. Oh, wow. Yeah. And he was known as the Single Saber Lee. He was a part of the Boxer Rebellion. And there are other Hubei lines that have more material than Lee Sun Yi did. But because he was a professional bodyguard, because he was out fighting real bandits with real swords and real knives and bare knuckles and all those other things, it had to work. And so it would be interesting to see how that person would teach and what they were teaching. Oh, definitely. Customato. Great answer. I think, I, I think Coach Customato is a genius, not just because of Tyson. Was it Robinson? Sugar Ray? Robinson? I think he was, was he... I think he was his coach too. Well, I'm probably wrong on that, but he, he was, he was a coach to so many great fighters. And it's, it's amazing because 
with each of the fighters, he tailored them a specific boxing style method for each fighter. I, I, I think that's amazing. I think that's absolutely genius. And then uh, I want to say, is it Teshu, the Sword of No Sword? Teshu, yeah, I think that's the gentleman's name. I haven't read, I haven't read that book in a little bit. Okay, um, but he was a, <laughs> you know, you hear about most uh, Japanese um, sword swordsmen, mm-hmm. and they're honorable, and that you know they got all the kowtowing and all this other stuff. This guy. Uh, was a bit of a womanizer, a bit of a drunk. He, he lived a rock and roll lifestyle, but nice. he was a swordsman swordsman. And so I think it's always fun to have somebody uh, more on the Motley Crue side <laughs> and the uh, Guns N' Roses side of teaching, as well as the the honorable side. So I think, I think that would be my four that I would love to train with. Nice. Hey, four answers that haven't been said yet, so that's, that's good. I like that. All right, and you know, with it, with kung fu, there's, you learn a lot of philosophy with that. So, is there one specific one you've learned that really stands out for you? Uh, philosophical piece. Yes. Yes. As lame as it sounds, it's just a piece by Lao Tzu, and it actually kind of goes along with the training and what to train and how to start training. Is a uh, a journey of a thousand miles begins with a single footstep. Nice. And so, I've always thought that. You know, it's kind of like going along with how to eat an elephant, you know, one bite at a time. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if, you, if you've got a big task ahead of you that you have to tackle, just take a step forward and, and, you know, have that as your starting point and then continue to move on from there. And that's helped me in some of my dark times and even starting new jobs, things like that. So I, I love that one. Very cool. All right. So favorite martial arts book? That one's hard, but I'm going to go back western boxing which i absolutely love western boxing mm-hmm. that's on my agenda to pick up western boxing by the time i'm 50 uh <laughs> jack dempsey's book on boxing uh, oh. uh championship uh striking and defense okay i just think it's written well by one of the greatest boxers that's ever lived and the human mechanics that he talks about in there mm-hmm. for a gentleman that never went to high school that dropped out of school as a young man it's basically a basic physics book. It's amazing. Wow. I'll have to add that to my list. I've never read that one. so Worth your time. All right. So were you a gamer? Do you have a favorite martial arts video game? I was kind of raised on two martial arts video games. Okay. One of them was Street Fighter Two. Nice. My mother and my, my friend Ted that I was mentioning earlier, mm-hmm. our mothers worked at the 7-Eleven together, and they kind of introduced us to each other to be buddies. Okay. And so every Saturday... Ted's mom would buy, uh, and we were little chubby kids back in the day, uh, but we would ride our bikes three miles down the hill to the 7-Eleven, and my mom would throw us a roll of quarters, so 20 bucks, so we got 10 bucks each, and then Ted's mom would buy us all the hot dogs and all the soda we could handle, and we would spend four or five hours a day nice. playing Street Fighter Two. That's awesome. So, <laughs> so yeah, I, there was a good two or three years where it was Street Fighter Two, mm-hmm. And then my first job, not working for my father, was in on Grand Lake on the docks. I worked at a marina. And at that marina was a built-in arcade on the water that had about 15 different video games in there. And the first Tekken, we had the first Tekken there. Nice. And so we would stay later. And the gentleman that uh, Mr. Adams was on your last uh, uh, podcast that yes. I listened to, yep. is it Andrew? Yeah, Andrew, yep. The character's name that he was thinking of is called Lei Wu Long. Okay. And, and, and Lei Wu Long was based upon Jackie Chan because Jackie Chan had just started to get really famous in the West. 
And so um, with, his, with his Americanized movies, like Rumble in the Bronx and yep. things like that. And so the character could actually change outfits and it would change his style. I don't know if you remember that, too. Wow, and no. so okay. he, had, he, he, had, he had a police officer uniform, but he could also do like the drunken style. He had the basic, you know, Jackie Chan kung fu. But that character was based upon Jackie Chan. And that was hands down my favorite character. So, yeah. So I grew up with Tekken, the very first one, and uh, Street Fighter 2. Very cool. All right. Favorite martial arts TV show? Uh, th- this one might be uh, out of the blue. Mm-hmm. I did grow up with the Kung Fu show, right. and I thought it was okay. Mm-hmm. But honestly, for me, it was early 2000s, and I loved me some Sammo Hung. Oh. And the martial law show, when it came out in the early 2000s, yep. I thought it was outstanding. That was my show. So even though I was 19 or 20 when it came out, it was just, that was the one I'm like, this is great. And I was also doing Wing Chun at the time. Mm-hmm. And I just started getting into the Kung Fu movies. And, you know, uh, Samuel Hung became my spirit animal because he was a chubby guy that could do aerial kicks. <laughs> so I'm like, that's my, that's my dude right there. Yeah, that show did not last long as it should have, man. It was so underrated and such an amazing show. Very good. And Kelly, one of Kelly Hughes' first projects, yep. the lovely Kelly Hughes. Definitely. All right. Favorite martial arts movie? I have two, okay. um, and, and I don't mind saying two. I have the one that started my martial journey, which was The Karate Kid. Right. But right now, and for a different reason, not for the fighting, for the philosophy, The Boy and the Beast. It's an anime. Really? Have you seen that one? I have not. Absolutely 100% worth your time. Okay. The Boy and the Beast. Uh, the gentleman that did it, it's like Hataro. I can't think of his name. But he is, uh, worked for Miyazaki for years and then came up with his own studio. And it's Miyazaki-esque, but he's very much his own style of uh, presenter of okay. storytelling. Cool. Beautiful story. Makes me cry cry every time. Nice. I will find that and watch it. So, And then final question. Obviously, it doesn't have to be a martial arts movie, but favorite movie fight scene? Oh, that's, that's a hard one. <laughs> that's a hard one. Uh do you want realistic fight scenes or cause I, I, I can think of one or two your pick and then, okay, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm going to do one scene. Okay. It is the last fight of 13 assassins. Ooh, nice. Have you, seen, have you seen 13 assassins? Oh yeah. I, I, it's been, a, it's been a few years, but I, yeah, I, I own the DVD of that one. So that is like a 10 minute sword, butt whipping scene. Now, as far as something that might be kind of like real life, mm-hmm. there are two, I consider them, they're from two movies, okay. but it's the same actor, and it's dang near the same scene. Okay. And it's, it's Viggo Mortensen and Eastern Promises in the, in the, uh, the hot bath. Okay. And, and then um, A History of Violence, <sighs> all of his fight scenes. Yes. I, I, mean, I mean, those are some of the, oh, my gosh, did somebody really get hurt and did somebody really die? Anytime <laughs> I see both those movies and I watch those fight scenes, I have to look away a lot because I'm like, that's pretty, that looks real. That's, that's awful. You know, history of violence is so good. That's one of my favorites. And another underrated one that I don't think they got the praise it deserved. Have you seen Eastern promises? It sounds familiar. I'm pretty sure I mean, if, if V goes in it, I'm pretty sure I have, I know I don't own that one, but I, I own the history of violence, but I'm pretty sure I've seen it, but it's probably been a while. You should rewatch that one. It is, it, um, it's one of those movies where you finish it and you're like, we're probably not going to make it as a species. It's a great movie. <laughs> okay. Good to know. I will rewatch that one for sure. So, 
Well, like I said, I will put links for I'll put links for your your um, Red Forest Chinese Boxing. I know you have the Facebook page out there. I'll put links for your podcast and anything else you need me to. But anything else you want to you want to mention before I let you go? And I've, I've I've enjoyed this so much. It's been a blast. I know we've we've talked and text and voice message so many times, but it's been fun to finally get this done. So absolutely no, just thanks for your time, Brian, and thanks for what you do. Uh, I, like I said, there's so many great martial arts podcasts out there. Uh, I just found one that uh, I really enjoy conversations on karate. Mm-hmm. I've been listening to a new one called talking fists. I listened to a Brazilian jiu-jitsu podcast called I suck at jiu-jitsu uh, from my <laughs> friend, Josh. Kenny. I just, I listened to a lot of martial arts podcasts. That's good. And as, as, as different as our style styles are, I, just, I think as a martial arts community, these are cool ways to bring us all together. And you, even if we do different styles of teaching in martial arts, I think it's it's cool that martial arts can have a voice now and we can, I don't know, just spread the message of get out there and train and, and have fun doing it. Meet some great people. Like we like we got to meet each other. Exactly. You'll have to send me those uh, couple you just mentioned. Uh, send me a message with those podcasts. Cause I'm getting ready. Tomorrow I'm taking a 17-hour road trip. So I'm looking for some new podcasts because yeah, I should have been ignoring all my podcasts for the last three weeks and building up episodes. And of course, I haven't been doing that. <laughs> so I'll need to find a few new ones and re-listen to some episodes and whatnot. But you know, I got about you know five or six main podcasts I listen to, but not enough of the martial arts ones that I listen to. So I need to definitely add a few for a 17-hour car trip. <laughs> well, I'll definitely pass them on. You might find some new guests that way too. Oh, de- always, always looking for that too. So, but but Randall, seriously, I appreciate your time and always a pleasure you're talking and it'll probably be two to three weeks before your episode comes out but I, i'm sure we'll be in touch before that and and uh yeah it, it was it was a blast as always and we will be in touch sounds great thanks for your time my friend have a great one thanks for listening to everyday martial artists we hope you will join us every week for a brand new episode with a different martial artist telling their story if you enjoy the show be sure to leave us a review also be sure to check out our website at everydaymartialartist.com there you can find all of our episodes and contact us to suggest guests and ask questions. Again, thanks for listening to Everyday Martial Artist, and we'll see you next week.